You're listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The 2023 New York Encounter just wrapped up, and we'd like to thank the over 400 volunteers who came to New York to help make it possible. We also want to thank everyone who made a financial contribution to the New York Encounter this year. And if you haven't, it's not too late. You can always head to newyorkencounter.org donate and contribute today. Good afternoon, everyone. It's, it's wonderful to be here with you, to see so many people gathered again uh, and, and not be simply virtual as we were last year. It really um, makes me filled with wonder and, and awe to see you all here um, and to see you here for this wonderful discussion that we're about to have um, on the Pax Americana. Um, I'd like to welcome all of you, not only in the room, but those who are also participating online. My name is Paolo Carrozza. I'm the professor of law and director of the Kellogg Institute for International Studies at the University of Notre Dame. Um, this particular panel is also being sponsored by Loyola University, so I'd like to express my thanks to them for their support. I have two exceptional guests here to introduce to you and to uh, engage in conversation with about this important topic today. To my left is Andrew Basevich, who importantly, grew up in Indiana. I think maybe that's the most important thing. We'll just stop there. Uh, Andrew graduated then from West Point in Princeton. He served in the Army, became a distinguished scholar and teacher, uh, and is now a writer and the president and co-founder of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, a Washington, D.C. think tank. He is the author or co-author editor of uh, more than a dozen books. The most recent one is entitled After the Apocalypse, America's Role in a World Transformed. To his left is my uh, longtime Notre Dame colleague and friend, Michael Desch, who's the Packy D. Professor of International Relations at the University of Notre Dame and the director of the Notre Dame in International Security Center. Before arriving at Notre Dame, uh, Michael was the founding director of the Scowcroft Institute of International Affairs and the first holder of the Robert Gates Chair in Intelligence and National Security Decision-Making at the George Bush School of Government and Public Service, Service at Texas A&M University. He's published num numerous scholarly works, many articles uh, also addressing a broader audience, not only an academic one. So, uh, gentlemen, <coughs> un undoubtedly the one question that is on everybody's mind, because it's what's in front of us in the newspapers and urgent is, are we going to be facing a war as soon as today uh, in the Ukraine and what is the U.S.'s role? But before we get there, I, I thought maybe it'd be useful to work our way up to that because it doesn't come out of nowhere. This whole panel was sort of conceived last summer when we first started talking about it as, in, as, as a, in some way to in, engage uh, the questions and the provocations that came to us, in particular witnessing the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the collapse of Afghanistan and the particular way that the U.S. and President Biden responded to that. And many of us asked ourselves, whoa, does this, does this mark the end of a historic era of the U.S.'s involvement in the world? It certainly seemed as a result of that that it's now better, more accurate maybe to regard the U.S., maybe we should have long before, as a declining power in the world and not as the unipolar hegemon of the world after the end of the Cold War. 
So is that right? I mean, should we regard now the U.S. as a declining power? And if so, by, by what criteria? How do we understand that to be the case? And what are the implications of that? Um, uh, and, and if it is declining, how should it decline? Is it possible for the U.S. to, to be a declining power in a way that is, let's say, uh, graceful and constructive for the world? Mike, do you want to begin? Yeah. Paulo, I think it's accurate to say the United States is declining uh, relative to the uh, really unprecedented and exceptional position it had between 1989 and 1993. Um, but I would resist framing it that way. I think the better way, at least to my way of thinking, is we ought to think about America becoming a normal power again. Um, that what we're, that when you say decline, it, it both, you know, sort of indicates, uh, you know, something that's really terrible and something that we should be fighting against. Um, and uh, I, I think, you know, there is certainly a downside to the end of Pax Americana. Um, but I also think there are some, some upsides. But in any case, uh, the unipolar moment that we've lived through, you know, over the uh, past 30 years or so was always destined to end. It was artificial, and uh, the world we're moving into now is the world of normal great power politics, in my judgment. I don't know what you think on that score, Andy. I think I would disagree with Mike in this sense, that the notion of a unipolar order, the claim that the United States was the indispensable nation, uh, the claim that history had reached some kind of an end, <clears throat> that was always a delusion. Uh, the basis of the delusion was the conviction uh, that with the end of the Cold War, the United States found itself in a position of uh, unchallenged ideological and military supremacy. And that and that, that supremacy was destined to, to, to last forever. Uh, again, my, my view would be that was always wrong. But, but, but those expectations did become the basis of U.S. policy from the time of the uh, fall of the Berlin Wall through 9-11, uh, arguably up to the invasion of Iraq in 2003. That's when I think the evidence be began to accumulate, uh, showing us that the post-Cold War expectations were always fundamentally misguided and wrong. Now, in, in some respects, I think the question of the present moment, a question for our, our political leaders, our political elites is, have you fellas and gals come to terms with that reality? Have you come to accept that? Whether, whether we call it decline or to call it something else, have you come to accept the reality, which you described, that no, this is not a unipolar world, this is a multipolar world, in which the United States is going to have to learn to live like a normal nation? 
and I think the answer to that question is we can't tell yet. I agree with you, by the way, um, on the delusional elements of the, uh, the unipolar uh, moment, and I think uh, I uh, picked that up uh, very early on in many things that you wrote um, at that time. Um, but what's interesting to me is uh, why we were taken in by that delusion. It seems to me that it's undeniable that we were in a pretty good position militarily, politically, economically, uh, etc. at the end of the Cold War. But why we believed that that situation would persist, uh, you know, for a long time into the future um, is, for me, one of the big uh, open questions. Because, because I am the senior citizen among the three of us, <laughs> I can answer your question. And the answer, I think, has to do with, particularly for members of my generation and maybe for the generation uh, older, that there was an expectation that the Cold War was going to last forever. There was an expectation that this rivalry between East and West, between liberalism and Marxist-Leninism was destined to go on forever. It defined international reality. And then, lo and behold, it ended. Without a shot being fired. Without the CIA even seeing, seeing, seeing it coming. And I think that the shock caused people who otherwise would have known better to lose touch with reality. And so we ended up getting all this end of history gibberish. Now, hard on the heels, remember the Berlin Wall falls in the fall of 89. Hard on the heels of that event, within a year, Saddam Hussein invades and occupies Kuwait, leading then to Operation Desert Storm, which is falsely interpreted as one of the world's greatest military victories. So we have both the ideological triumphalism of the actual end of the Cold War now combined with military triumphalism. It was a relatively small third-rate war against a fifth-rate opponent, but nonetheless, it seemed like an enormous victory. And I think it's those two things that combine, particularly in members of my generation for a time, uh, to, to persuade people that you know, a, a new era had somehow dawned. We'd reached the end of history. <laughs> right. We were the indispensable nation. So Boy, great, those were great heady times. Thank you for listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The New York Encounter is a three-day cultural event that takes place every President's Day weekend in Manhattan. Every year, we bring together speakers, put on exhibits, and host musical shows offering opportunities for education, dialogue, and friendship. Following St. Paul's suggestion to test everything and retain what is good, the encounter aims to discover, affirm, and offer to everyone truly human expressions of the desire for truth, beauty, and justice. To learn more about the New York Encounter, visit newyorkencounter.org. But exactly on this point, though, and that's a really helpful um, segue, Andy, to another set of questions that I, uh, I would love to sort of have your reflections on. 
So much of the reality of the U.S. being the unipolar power in the world wasn't merely, hasn't been, I shouldn't speak entirely in the past tense on this, um, isn't just vested in the raw fact of military might. It's invested with a sort of moral aura to it. It's invested with an ideology that says we're the indispensable power not merely to maintain order, but to maintain a good order, an order that is directed towards democracy, to the protection of rights, to uh, a, a rules-based international order in which greater prosperity will be gained by all the peoples of the world. Is that also just sort of an illusion of that time, or is there something left to that? Is it still the case, has it ever been the case in this time that the U.S has a distinctive moral role to play in the power that it wields in the world, even in this changing era? Well, we've always believed, uh, we collectively, uh, have always believed that we had a, dis a distinct moral role. Uh, you know, you go back to uh, 1630 in the city upon a hill, uh, laying a claim to a, a collective responsibility that we own as Americans, they weren't quite Americans then, uh, that, that we're called upon to fulfill with respect to the rest of the world. One of the really intriguing things to me, and, 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 and this tends to center on the meaning of the word freedom. Mm -hmm. and we are the freedom people. We manifest freedom. We spread freedom. We defend freedom. And to me, one of the most interesting things is, oh, by the way, we also constantly redefine freedom. And our definition, we believe, is the authoritative definition at any particular time. Uh, and again, speaking as the senior citizen among us, uh, the, the operative meaning of the word freedom is a heck of a lot different today than it was in 1947 when I was born. And in some respects, the definition today is an improvement. Sadly, in some respects, I think it, it's gone in the wrong direction. We've, we've lost sight uh, of what the true meaning of freedom ought to be. Regardless, we manifest freedom and it's up to the rest of the world to get on board. That tends to be, I think, uh, a continuing theme in our politics. I think your, your question is spot on, Paulo, in emphasizing that the unipolar moment was much more than um, just U.S. Uh, military and economic superiority. That there was an important moral component to it. Or, you know, we uh, felt that the end of the Cold War, you know, not only was we won the race, but we won the race because we're better, because we're a democracy because uh, we uh, had market economies, uh, we respected sovereignty and human rights, unless we didn't, but we didn't, you know, sort of <laughs> really talk about it. But the, 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 the thing for me that I keep coming back to is one of the things that makes us great as a country is this element of morality that's an important part of our natural a national culture. But I see it as a double-edged sword because it also can blind us 
to uh, some of the, uh, our own failings and uh, our own weaknesses. And so the triumphalism at the end of history, not only as Andy suggested, you know, led us to think uh, that we'd be in the catbird seat uh, for a thousand years, um, but it also led us to think that the rest of the world would want us there, mm. uh, even our uh, democratic allies. And so we, we had this, you know, sort of cognitive disconnect when Madeleine Albright, you know, was haranguing the uh, Europeans about us being the uh, indispensable nation. We sort of said, ah, it's just those Frenchies who, you know, never liked <laughs> us anyhow. Uh, or when Rumsfeld was, you know, dismissing old Europe for uh, criticizing the United States, uh, you know, for the uh, invasion of Iraq in March of 2003, we, we, we assumed that there couldn't be anything legitimate there because we were in the right. We were on the right side of history. Our motives were pure. We were doing good things. Uh, the laws, the iron laws of international politics, especially balance of power, uh, just did not apply to us. And it was even in a way worse. Um, there's a lot of discussion, and I know I'm maybe running a little bit ahead to uh, uh, Ukraine, which you were saving for the end. But um, the, for me, the original sin of the period of Pax Americana, or one of them, was NATO expansion. And uh, the evidence, it seems to me, is very clear, and it's from historians, Andrew, so I'm not uh, just bringing political science into this, uh, that um, in the waning days uh, of the uh, Berlin Wall, that uh, the last Soviet uh, premier, Mikhail Gorbachev, had been assured that if Germany was reunified, East Germany could be part of NATO, but NATO would not expand. Um, and yeah, it was never written down anywhere, but you know, the, the track record is, uh, is pretty clear on that. And throughout the 1990s, particularly during the uh, first uh, presidency in Russia of Boris Yeltsin, Russian liberals were telling us that uh, if we cared about the fate of Russian democracy, we would not expand NATO. <laughs> And we sort of said, yeah, 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 but we didn't believe it. We didn't believe it because we thought, how could the Russians regard the expansion of a democratic defensive alliance in which people were coming in as a result of their free choice as a threat to Russian security? It just, it didn't compute. But the truth of the matter is, and we'll come to this in greater detail, is in fact many Russians, not just the kleptocrat in the Kremlin now, um, but many Russians uh, of otherwise, uh, you know, good democratic credentials felt that NATO expansion uh, was uh, a threat to uh, Russian security. And again, we couldn't see that. We couldn't see it because I think we were so convinced uh, that we were on the side of the angels in doing this that if they objected to it, they had to have evil uh, or malign intent. See, it's, it, it's, it's interesting, the example that you use, Mike, because it's not just that um, uh, we have good intents, but the example that you draw 
also suggests a presumption of unity with Europe around that. That perhaps is this longer result of the Cold War that you're referring to, Andy, as well, right? Uh, for, for decades, it was the Atlantic Alliance was seen, yes, there were some problems over the deployment of missiles in, you know, in the 80s or something else, but generally that was seen as a unified Western bloc, right? Um, and uh, unified around certain values as well. Um, and that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. Part of what seems to be the, both the consequences as well as the drivers of the shifting US role in the world is a more explicit fragmentation of what was considered the West and its values and its politics. Is that right? Is that, is that the right way of thinking about it? And if so, what's, what's behind that and how should we understand it? The relations with Europe. Well, I, I write about this in, in my most recent book, at least slightly, and that is, I think it's time for us to ask the question, does the West exist? Uh, it was, in its time, it was a useful formulation. Uh, and I think, especially during the Cold War, uh, it was useful to think of the United States as part of the West, as the leader of the West. Uh, I don't think it makes sense anymore. I mean, we are all witnessing a massive cultural upheaval uh, within our country that is bringing about a vast redistribution of, of power, of, 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 of status among different groups. And it, it seems to me that the I don't want to get on sensitive cultural turf here, uh, but, but during the Cold War, also during World War II, not insignificantly, th there was a presumption of, of white preeminence. The West was a white construct. Doesn't mean there weren't people of color in France or in Great Britain or certainly not in the United States, but as a as, as a mechanism to exercise power, to pursue interests, uh, it was a white enterprise. Uh, I don't think that works anymore. Not only does it not work, it's also not in the interests of the United States uh, to view itself and the international order through that lens. Uh, and so the whole, to me it is pastime uh, for us to rethink the relevance of that, of that construct. I mean, you're absolutely right, Paolo, that uh, the fig leaf of the West, which I think was always a bit of a fig leaf going back uh, certainly to uh, De Gaulle, but even before that, the debates about German re, uh, rearmament uh, indicated just how fragile the notion of the West is. But certainly today, um, it's a less and less useful uh, concept. I'm not sure I'm with Andy uh, on the social piece of it, but certainly in terms of geopolitical interests, the United States has decided, um, you know, at least since the Obama administration and probably before, that the great power, the locus of great power politics is going to be the Pacific, not the uh, Atlantic world. 
But also, you know, what you're seeing in Europe today in terms of the very disparate responses of European countries to the Ukraine crisis is again a reflection of very different interests. It's no accident, comrade, that Germany is heavily dependent on Russian natural gas and that they would have a different view on how to uh, deal with Russia um, than some other countries might have, you know, makes, uh, makes perfect sense. So in a way, you know, when the, um, I think this goes back to a, a question that um, Andy had uh, touched on about whether uh, the people today in the administration are recognizing the new world. I mean, I, th I thought President Obama did a courageous thing in moving ahead with the withdrawal from Afghanistan and you know following through on the agreement that uh, President Trump had negotiated. So I mean, I give him a lot of credit for that, especially because he took a lot of heat for things I don't think he could have really done anything about. But what worries me about the uh, Biden administration is that uh, in many other areas, and particularly in Europe, they think that the way to deal with the Trump interregnum is just to go back to the good old days of Atlanticism. So America is back, you know, we've got your back, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And in a way, it was a little bit pathetic um, that th that's how we were seeing the challenges of the 21st century was simply to repudiate um, the uh, Trump approach, uh, you know, which probably deserves repudiation in some respects, but not everything that the Trump administration represented in terms of America's role in the world is necessarily wrong, even if a lot of it was uh, implemented uh, in a pretty ill-thought-out and ham-handed way. Um, and so the, the West is no more. Why it's no more, academics like Professor Basevich and I can uh, debate over Sherry and the <laughs> faculty club, but it's gone. He's right. We agree. So, so one, one follow-up question to that, and then I, I can't resist sort of going to the Ukraine question. But that is, if the West is gone or was always just a construct, um, that was artificial, uh, tailored to the circumstances, then who today are the U.S.'s natural allies? I mean, we've always thought of, that, that's, that's the Europeans, it's the other democracies, it's, uh, it's the, the transatlantic alliance and so forth. Um, are there countries, are there regions that we should, or maybe not, regard as being essential partners of the United States in a more nuanced way of thinking about the way that world order has evolved? So, dating back to World War II, but especially dating back to the beginning of the Cold War, when that first Cold War generation, you know, George Marshall, Dean Acheson, George Kennan, Paul Nitza, you could name two or three or four others, formulated a new national security paradigm that they viewed as relevant to the new post-war era. That paradigm was based on the conviction that the principal threats to the safety and well-being of the American people were way out there. 
They were far away. They were in Europe. They were in East Asia. And the appropriate response to those threats was military power. Therefore, it was incumbent upon the United States, really in response to NSC 68, 1950, to build up great military power held in readiness to go fight way out there. You know, the, the US Army units that are at Fort Hood, Texas, are not there to defend Texas. They're there to go fight, potentially, in Poland. And that, and that was the national security paradigm that prevailed throughout the Cold War and into the post-Cold War era. That's irrelevant, I think. From my perspective, the, the, the threats to our well-being and our security are where we live. I mean, what, what should we be concerned with when it comes to national security? We should be concerned with climate change. We should be concerned with pandemics. We, sh we should be concerned with porous borders. We should be concerned with a, a democracy that is suffering from a profound internal crisis. So the national security challenges that we face, this is not an argument to ignore China, it's not an argument to ignore Russia or the Persian Gulf, but the primary national security challenges that we face are right here where we live. And that says that there needs to be a, an enormous shift in priorities so that climate change and pandemics and, and borders get far more attention and then perhaps we devote fewer resources to being prepared to go defend Taiwan uh, or, or Poland. I think that's the, that's the core issue that virtually nobody within the foreign policy establishment is willing to acknowledge because their entire mindset is one that says it's threats way out there that we have to pr prepare ourselves to address. I think that's obsolete thinking and, and quite frankly, it's dangerous thinking because it allows the things that threaten us where we live to go inadequately addressed. Yeah, I, I think Andy's right. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the threat environment we face, as he laid out, is, uh, is much more complex. But I, I, I think I was hearing uh, a, uh, a point in your question follow about um, uh, who are our key allies today. Um, and I think a lot of people, and this, you know, I think was part and parcel of why the uh, uh, Biden administration was so hard over in uh, revitalizing NATO. It's the old thinking that Andy's describing. But I, I don't think a downgrading of NATO and a downgrading on the U, of the U.S. military commitment in Eurasia indicates that Europe doesn't remain an important partner for the United States. It does economically, it does diplomatically, it does uh, culturally. Likewise, the, you know, there are other states around the world that we are uh, developing uh, important connections with. India, for example, um, in South Asia or uh, Australia. 
Um, you know, so uh, in addition to our traditional uh, allies in Northeast Asia, uh, Japan and, uh, and South Korea. Um, and so I, I think that uh, many people wrongly say anybody, you know, like me or like Andy who says the United States should be less militarily involved in the world is somehow an isolationist. Uh, I think that's a canard and it's also inaccurate. We're internationalists, we just believe that the United States has uh, lots of other tools in the toolbox of statecraft than it can use. And uh, climate change is uh, a key example. There's no way climate change is going to be addressed except as a global issue. There's nothing we or any other country can do uh, unilaterally to uh, address climate change. Mm. But I, and I didn't answer your question. But, but the countries that are most important, Mexico and Canada. <laughs> Those are the two nations on the planet where we should indeed have special relationships. One of the things that I never get over is our collective fascination with the British royal family. <laughs> why, why do we care about Harry and Meghan and Charles and Camilla? Why? And Prince is, Andrew, did you say? Uh, well, why, why, is that, why is that appropriate for the nightly news? Uh, but I think that is an example of the way in which the old paradigm, where the, 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 the threats to our well-being were far away, made the United Kingdom, and it was for a time, made the United Kingdom an especially important player, is that doesn't pay attention anymore. And we should know who is the Prime Minister of Canada, even if probably half of us don't. So the most pernicious manifestation of this uh, Anglophilia is this dumb bust of Winston Churchill, uh, which is either in the Oval Office <laughs> or for the brief Trump interregnum in a box in the basement. We ought to take this thing, uh, and uh, if it's metal, yeah, we ought to you know, sell it for scrap um, and spend the money on some of the domestic problems, uh, fix the potholes on Andy's street up there in Walpole. You are listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The Encounter is entirely volunteer-run and donation-funded. And as you probably realize, it takes a lot of money every year to put it on. What that means is that if you want The Encounter to continue its work, we need your help. Head on over to newyorkencounter.org donate and consider making a monthly donation to sustain The Encounter in its work. Thank you for your support. Okay, so, so let, let's finally then, you know, put some of these more general things to the test in the specific case of Ukraine. I mean, one of the questions is pressing on all of us, I'm sure, is simply the descriptive or predictive question of what's actually going to happen and what is going on. And um, I'd love to have, you know, your informed views about how you think it's going to play out over the next few days and weeks. But more importantly than that, I'd, I'd like us to sort of get at the question of what does it mean for the United States, for these things more at a broader level that, that you've been addressing already. What, what does the Ukraine conflict signify for the role that the U.S. ought to be playing, can constructively be playing? What does it mean to be still a global power, an internationalist, not simply withdrawing, but in a different way? 
right? How does, how does Ukraine present an example of how the U.S. might engage the world in a more constructive way in this new, in this new dispensation? Well, I fear what, what it's going to do uh, is that it's basically going to hijack the foreign policy debate. Uh, it will persuade uh, elites uh, that we're back in 1947 uh, and that you know, the number one threat we need to worry about is, again, way out there in Europe. Of course, in the present moment, uh, combined with the other way out there threat, uh, which is the People's Republic of China. Uh, and, and that will then become a rationale for the continued militarization of U.S. policy, for continuing to emphasize uh, armed intervention to solve things way out there, and therefore will be, be an impediment to the sort of large-scale rethinking of U.S. policy that at least I think is very much in order. So, the, so the, whether or not there is a war, and, and you know, we should all pray that there will not be a war, I think the implications of this crisis are likely to be quite negative. The Ukraine crisis, um, but I also think you know the sort of potential crisis um, in of Taiwan in East Asia, illustrate for me the uh, deep moral complexities of the issues at stake. Ukraine is a weak democracy, but there's no doubt that um, the uh, sort of democratic uh, tendency in uh, Ukraine is towards the West. Um, and also the, the Ukrainian assertions of uh, sovereignty are in accord with uh, international law. I mean, you know this uh, better than I do. And, and likewise, in Taiwan, as Taiwan has become more democratic, uh, the sentiment towards independence has grown as well. The problem is, is in both cases, um, these uh, trends um, are pushing us to uh, confrontation with nuclear-armed great powers. And so the uh, tension between what's in our interest and what's in the interest uh, of keeping the peace um, and other moral values that we hold quite deeply is becoming uh, more and more acute. And, and this is a world in which uh, we need people who don't think in black and white, but who think in shades of gray, because you know, the moral elements of these uh, complex problems are not irrelevant. But on the other hand, just saying we have the moral high ground, that we're supporting Democrats in Kyiv and in Taipei, against autocrats in uh, Beijing or in Moscow uh, is uh, a dangerous uh, you know, sort of mindset to have going forward. So I said America needs to be a normal nation. Um, and uh, we weren't a normal nation during the period uh, of Pax Americana. And part of the thing that a normal nation has to do uh, is to uh, make prudential judgments uh, about competing moral uh, concerns. And we haven't had to do that, um, but we have to, or for a long time, but we have to do it now. And I sort of, when you th think of how the uh, political debates um, on these issues 
are conducted, especially in our country, you have to despair a little bit. I mean, where's the uh, Castlereagh or Metternich thinking about, you know, yeah. how to rebuild the uh, European order that was destroyed by the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars? Where are the statesmen and women uh, of that sort of sophistication? They aren't in Washington, and I'm not sure they're in Brussels, uh, or other capitals uh, in the Western world. I, certainly, the 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 capacity to um, to, as you put it, Mike, to to um, make prudential judgments about complicated and, to some extent, irreconcilable moral questions, uh, isn't merely a problem of our foreign policy. It's a problem of our political life and our public life, and the very use of reason that we have. In, in the world as it is uh, today, where uh, some moral qualities are hung onto as absolutes and swung as ideological clubs while others are ignored altogether. And uh, a, a prudence is the last thing that one sees at, at many levels. So that, that brings me to a question instead about how, how do you see, uh, and you, you began to allude to this when you described the problem of our democracy at home. Uh, but how do you see the, the difficulty of our public life in the United States as contributing to this difficulty of finding a prudent and, and, and positive role for the United States to play elsewhere in the world as well? Well, that's a huge question. Um, that's you can why they pass it on to me. <laughs> that's why they paid me the big bucks for being here. <laughs> my 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 own view uh, is that I'm a Vietnam veteran, so everything I think and everything I say has to somehow relate to the Vietnam War. And I I believe that in many respects our country is still really wrestling with the undigested uh, consequences of the Vietnam War. And one Im important example has to do with the definition of citizenship and the extent to which citizenship involves not only rights and privileges, but also duties and obligations. One of those core duties and obligations, in my judgment, has to do with the obligation of citizens to rise to the defense of the country when the country is in need of being defended. I'll give you a 30-second simplified overview of US military history. And that is that the, American, the preferred American military system was centered on the concept of a citizen soldier. And when the nation was at threat, or when the nation was going to embark upon some wild imperial adventure, it turned to citizen soldiers to handle that task. That was true in the War of 1812, the Civil War, Spanish-American War, World War I, World War II, citizen soldiers sometimes relying on volunteers, sometimes conscription. In the Vietnam War, 
the Vietnam War destroys the concept of a citizen soldier. We, the people, decide that. The antidote is the so-called all-volunteer force, which the, which the founders of our republic would have called the standing army. This seemed to be a way to let us as citizens off the hook. No more obligation to defend the country, while simultaneously providing a mechanism for the state, meaning the central state, to raise up and organize the forces that would enable us to continue to be the world's leading power. That's what the all-volunteer force seemed to do until itself began to fail, and it failed critically in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, which we lost, both of them. So here we are, presumably the world's most powerful country. God knows we spend more on our military than anybody, far and away, and yet, we lose. I think that that is a fundamental crisis that we confront as a country and more specifically as citizens. And what we're called upon to do is to think more deeply about what kind of military system is appropriate for a liberal democracy that also finds itself as a great power. And virtually nobody wants to take on that question because the answer, the answer could well involve sacrifice. And that's one thing that the American people are allergic to. If I could just add one other uh, bad development in addition um, to the uh, uh, shift from uh, conscription to the all-volunteer force. It's also been the case that uh, Congress is pretty much whores to combat in terms of the war powers. We don't declare war um, anymore. And, uh, you know, part of the, the growth of the imperial presidency during the Cold War, you know, reflected some of the exigencies uh, of life in the modern nuclear age. But the real core of the problem is that it's not in the interest of most members of Congress to make hard decisions in terms of war and peace in national security. You don't get elected, for the most part, um, uh, on those issues, and, uh, uh, but you can get hurt, especially if uh, you don't support X weapon system and it turns out to be really critical or even more important that it could have been built in your district. Um, and so the, the idea that um, Congress would be a check on the executive and also a venue for public deliberation about the larger uh, interests at stake in various uses of force ha has pretty much gone the way of the, uh, of the dodo bird. So we, we have Andy's description of the, uh, the, the warfare state, which has been a c continuous theme in a lot of his work, I think is, uh, is undeniable. Um, but the thing is, is that the roots uh, of that problem are also uh, quite, uh, quite deep. And ultimately, at the end of the day, it's like, Pogo. We've seen the enemy, and the enemy <laughs> is us. I, I don't want to serve. I never served in uniform. I don't want my kids to serve. 
Um, and uh, uh, I'm not calling my uh, two senators or my congresswoman every day and lobbying her on uh, you know, Ukraine or other uh, international security issues. And, and that's, I'm not atypical of uh, the American public. Um, and uh, so our, our, our troubles are deeply rooted. You are listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The Encounter is entirely volunteer-run and donation-funded. And as you probably realize, it takes a lot of money every year to put it on. What that means is that if you want the Encounter to continue its work, we need your help. Head on over to newyorkencounter.org donate and consider making a monthly donation to sustain the Encounter in its work. Thank you for your support. Let's let's see if we can, uh, to some extent, shift direction or at least shift geographic area, um, but still uh, push a little bit harder on this question of the U.S. being a responsible international power, a gracefully declining power, perhaps a more wise power with regard to its what are its existential interests, but ask those questions with respect to our relations to China. Um, China, in the view uh, of, of so many across the political spectrum right now in the United States, does represent, even more than Russia, the single most global threat to American ideals, to American economic interests, to American values, to American relations with others. Um, and to some extent, the... the, the um, uh, you know, s some of the dangers that are represented in China are, are, are undeniable. Whether it's industrial espionage or genocide going on against the Uyghurs or wholesale suppression of freedom of religion. Is it then uh, right for the U.S. foreign policy establishment to be as in some quarters it seems to be the case, increasingly regarding the, the standoff with China to be acquiring something like a new Cold War status of the superpowers who globally and across fundamental issues of, of political values uh, are, are, are confronting one another. And if that's not the right model, what is? What's, what's the more responsible model that does represent a U.S. engaged in the world in a positive way but not being sort of recklessly overextended to saying everything in the world is our responsibility. See, I think China presents another uh, end of history sort of overreach moment because, you know, there, there was for a, a period of at least 20 years a great optimism that was widely shared within the uh, political establishment um, that the rise of China could be managed by the integration of China into the uh, liberal global order, meaning uh, free markets and uh, rules-based international politics. Um, that vision has failed, and I'm with John Mearsheimer. I think it was always uh, destined to fail, as he lays out in his book, The uh, Great Illusion. But I, I think we're in danger of swinging in the other direction. We had these unrealistic expectations that China's rise would somehow be different from normal great power politics 
we were wrong about that, but we're going to say uh, now we've got to treat China as you know an implacable and uh, invincible adversary. And I think that's the, the, the wrong way to think about it. China poses challenges, both militarily, but also economic and diplomatic. But I have to say, if I had a choice to play China's hand and our hand in the uh, poker game of 21st century great power politics, I still like our hand. And I think, again, the challenge for us is to figure out uh, what we need to uh, stand firm on um, and what we need to uh, compromise on. And what worries me uh, particularly about Taiwan, which everybody regards as the most likely flashpoint, is we've gone from a position of realistic ambiguity that I think accurately represents the ambiguity of Taiwan's position uh, to increasingly a position of moral certitude uh, that uh, we have to do everything it takes to defend Taiwan and contain China. And again, not sure we can do it, and I'm not sure we need to do it in order to uh, advance our interests. So I'm, <clears throat> I'm anything but a Chinese hand. I worry about this uh, <clears throat> kind of lazy notion of new Cold War, which implicitly compares the People's Republic of the 21st century to the Soviet Union and the Soviet Empire post-World War II. The Soviet Union had vast ideological ambitions. That's one of the reasons why we were, and, and, and their ambitions had a certain amount of appeal uh, in parts of Western Europe, in the, in the Third World. That's one of the reasons they, we had to worry about them. I don't see that the People's Republic has any particular ideological ambitions. They're not trying to convert Africa into a, a collection of Maoist states. So they're different from the Soviet Union, and, and we should recognize those differences. Seems to me the competition is primarily in the realm of economics, which, which kind of says we need to get off our tails uh, and, and get to work and compete. The comparison with the Cold War might yield some uh, use if we remember the extent to which that even during the Cold War, we and the Soviets found ways to make common cause on certain specific issues mm. that we cared about, we both cared about, the most significant of those beginning what? I guess in the mid-1960s, uh, being uh, nuclear proliferation and nuclear weapons. I think the comparison today, I wouldn't want to forget about nuclear weapons, but I think the comparison today, you've alluded to this, uh, is the climate crisis. Uh, there ain't no solution unless the United States and the People's Republic of China can uh, collaborate. That's been said a thousand times. It's easy to say, hard to make, to, to do it, but I think paying due attention uh, to that issue doesn't make the other issues go away, but could perhaps open an avenue uh, toward you know, reducing the level of tension in other matters as well. I do think that there is uh, one area of sort of ideological competition that is at stake between uh, us and China, and that's 
what's the most successful uh, developmental model? Mm. And I think China has bet the farm on uh, the Asian model, which is not just uh, particular to China. And we retain um, much greater faith in the uh, market um, than, uh, than they do. I, I guess I'm a residual liberal, so I... But I mean, it, 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 could the difference be described? Their, their model is a production model? Our model is a consumption model? Yes, well, that, that's part of it, but I think the big part of it, the most fundamental difference is states versus markets. Mm -hmm as the adjudicators of economic um, decisions. Um, and uh, I'm, you know, like I said, I think I'm bullish enough on our system to think that with all its problems, it's a lot better than, um, you know, uh, an effort to uh, recreate uh, Gosplan or, you know, the, these uh, great elements of economic dynamism uh, of the communist uh, past. Um, but. But I think Andy's basic point is a really important one, and I do want to put a, a, a fine point on it. Great power politics is about competition, but it's also about cooperation. And for most of history, great powers were able to recognize both of those as legitimate, and in a way to uh, balance um, one with the, uh, with the other. Um, and I think if, if I thought that uh, our political class was thinking about China or Russia, for that matter, in, in both of those terms, I'd be sleeping a lot better at night than I am now, because I don't think that uh, most Americans think that way or see these uh, relationships that way. So, so that's, uh, we, we only have a few minutes left. You've opened up so much to, for us to think about and to continue to discuss. But g given the time, I want to take Mike's very last point and refer to sort of the ordinary citizens and what we're thinking about. I mean, as far as I know, nobody in the room here is uh, exercising major responsibility over the foreign policy decisions of the Biden administration. Um, and it's intriguing to me that so much of what you've mentioned in the conversation, and indeed this new Quincy Institute, new, a couple of years old that you founded and, and are directing, you know, is, is entitled Responsible Statecraft. Responsible Statecraft. And, and much of what you've been talking about are essential virtues like, like prudence, right? So maybe we could close just, you know, with a, a, we have three minutes left. I mean, how can we, as citizens, of this country help to develop the virtues that are necessary for responsible statecraft to take place? Well, I think we begin with uh, coming to a realistic understanding of our own history. A lot of that going on these days. The 1619 Project, as, as an example. Uh, I don't fully subscribe to the claims of the 1619 Project, but I think that proponents of the 1619 Project capture the imperative of being willing to revise our understanding of our own history, uh, to, to come to some more honest accounting, deeper appreciation 
I think that that's required not simply with regard to race. I think it's, requ it's required with regard to our role in the world. You know, there is this prevailing paradigm, American isolationism, American global leadership, pick one. It's nonsense. Uh, the United States uh, has never, never uh, practiced isolationism. I think the abiding theme of U.S. foreign policy, going back to the founding of the Republic, has basically been opportunistic expansionism. When there's an opportunity for us to enhance our power, we grab it. Let's take Mexico. Let's take the Philippines. Whatever. Uh, and, and that is how we came to become the dominant nation on the planet by 1945. Opportunistic expansionism doesn't work anymore. There's a need both to recognize the existence of that tradition, the importance of that tradition, and now the urgency of moving to something that is more relevant to the world as it exists and to our place in the world. Thanks, Mike, last, so last Andy, words. Um, edited, I think, and wrote the introduction to, was it the uh, Modern American Library edition of Reinhold Niebuhr? Uh, it was a University of Chicago Press, but yeah. yeah, uh, no, no, yeah. The, the, it, and and I, I think we have the intellectual resources uh, within our tradition to think in the realistic fashion that uh, the 21st century uh, requires of us. And I think we also, especially uh, in Niebuhr, have a, uh, the resources to combine realism with a Christian ethics and to, you know, understand that the world we live in is a world uh, of grays, not black and whites, and that the moral choice is going to be made um, in the uh, the gray areas. Uh, we're, we Catholics know that the road to hell is often paved with good intentions. I would say if I was going to design the epitaph for the gravestone of Pax Americana, I would say the road to hell uh, the past uh, 30 years has been paved with many good intentions, also some bad ones. Thank you. Well, hopefully these reflections can help bring us all back to you know, what in the Catholic intellectual tradition has always been referred to as the tranquility of order, right? Which has a very clear moral realism to it. Um, before thanking our guests, just one quick announcement for everybody at the close of this. Um, your gift makes the encounter available free for everybody. So please give generously at the donation table uh, outside the auditorium or you can do so with just a couple clicks from the website at newyorkencounter.org slash donate, and those donations are tax deductible. Um, so please join me in uh, thanking Professor Michael Desch, Andrew Basevich, for such an illuminating discussion today. Good job. Well done. Well done, Mike. Thank you for listening to the New York Encounter podcast. We hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please consider posting a review on whatever platform you listen on. Those reviews really help the podcast reach more listeners. If you share the podcast on social media, please tag the New York Encounter. On Twitter, we're at NY Encounter.